The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. Psalm 39 is where we're going to be today. So if you don't have your Bibles, there's all over the, the backs of the chairs. Just kind of let your Bible fall open in the middle. You'll probably be somewhere close to a psalm uh, at that point. Psalm 39. Uh, we've been walking through these psalms uh, throughout the summer, talking about them and remembering, reminding ourselves that these are songs, um, that, that they didn't read these. They weren't primarily poetry. Um, these were songs. These were songs that people would have been singing. Um, even some of these hard uh, psalms that we read uh, would be uh, songs that people would have been singing um, to each other during that time and to the Lord. So we were, we've been reminding ourselves about that um, and trying to put the songs of Christ into our hearts. Um, that the Psalms help us through so many different times of our lives. That's why we're so attracted to the Psalms, uh, because they speak directly to our hearts so many times. And so we've been just trying to push people, uh, push our hearts uh, to the Psalms um, so that they would get into our hearts. They just kind of echo there and reverberate there uh, when we need them the most. So some of the Psalms can be big and loud and majestic. We talked about that last week with Psalm 29 how it just kind of crashes in as sort of God's theme song. Um, and then there are some psalms that express a deep sadness um, that, that, that help us, I think, uh, deal with our own sadness and our own pain. Psalm 39 is one of those kinds of psalms, a psalm that, that directly addresses a time of, of pain and disappointment and deep sadness. Uh, so I think we're going we're gonna to learn a lot and gain a lot uh, from the time that we have today as we talk about uh, those issues in our lives. Uh, I'm going to approach this psalm in two different ways. As I was kind of preparing and reading through it this week, it, it sort of jumped out at me that this is the way we need uh, to do this. We're going to talk about the psalm from two different ways, two different ways to kind of process uh, our sadness and our pain and our disappointment uh, in life. One of those is experiential, um, that there is a, a very valid way that God wants us to express pain and sadness and disappointment that is our experiences. Um, It's our emotions, our feelings, um, our relationships, and our relationship with Him. And we're going to see that uh, in this text today. And then the second way that I think this psalm talks about how we uh, express and deal with and process through sadness um, is in our worldview. Maybe that's more of our theology, our personal theology, our personal belief about Uh, the world and about God and about ourselves and the purpose of pain and all those kinds of things that form the way that we look at our existence. Uh, So we're going to be looking at it this this morning from those two perspectives, like this experiential perspective and sort of a worldview theology uh, perspective. There are seasons in our lives, there are circumstances that come our way where we are so sad that we don't even know how to mourn. We are so broken and in such pain, we don't know how to properly lament and mourn that kind of pain. Uh, What we believe about God and what we believe about sadness in this world can actually sometimes make that process worse. Um, 
we are going to experience pain. We're going to experience sadness and desperation and, and hopelessness. I mean, these things are coming our way. And often what we believe to be true about the world and about God and about ourselves and about pain can actually make that whole circumstance and experience that much worse. So, for instance, um, I was reading this blogger this week. Her name is Dee Breston. And uh, she's a Christian writer and author. And she was talking about a, a woman in her organization, her ministry organization. And they had gone on, I think, on a work retreat with each other um, to, to go hash some things out for the next year. And during that, that uh, worker retreat, uh, this coworker of hers got the phone call that her sister-in-law had taken her life. And so she leaves early, and the team kind of decides they're going to leave early to go be with her several days later. And when they, they catch up to their team member back before the funeral, um, this is what she said. She said, her, this friend of ours had been trying to lament, but first found herself very fearful to really lament. She realized then that the Lord was showing her that he was not like her earthly father who was so critical of her. If she had lamented to her earthly dad, he would have been unkind or dis- distanced himself emotionally. God wants our honest expressions. He can take it. He wants honesty as he wants intimacy. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. He understood her desperate heart. He is the friend of sinners, a friend who cares, who understands our weakness, who is desperate himself. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because for that time, when he was bearing our sins, he was forsaken. He was forsaken so that we never will be. There are times when even what we believe about God and how it's been shaped by our earthly relationships changes, inhibits maybe, the way that we experience sadness. Have you ever felt bad about feeling bad as a Christian? I shouldn't feel bad about that. God's in charge. But your heart's broken, right? You ever, you ever experienced that, right? I think for maturing Christians, you're going to walk through this at some point or another. Your theology is going to run headlong into your experience, man, you know? And it's going to be a really difficult thing to process. So sometimes we find that to be true. So we're going to talk about all of those things, say how to express our deep, deep sadness, but also the worldview, the theology we need to help us kind of not just push through, but to process it rightly. It's probably the best way to talk about that. Um, Tim Keller wrote this excellent book. I know when Matt Barnhill was here, he uh, recommended it to us, and I think we may still have some copies out in the uh, Resource Center, uh, Walking with God Through Pain um, and Suffering. We had a small group, a men's group that walked through that also. Um, he talks excellently about these issues. And one of the things that he talks about actually in a second, secondary sermon that he preached sort of out of that, he talked about there are three ways um, that people tend to deal uh, with pain and with suffering. Um, and the, the Psalms teach us what he calls a gospel third way to respond to our sadness and our emotions that come when pain comes our way. First of all, he says, because uh, of our particular brand of Christianity, we tend to be uncomfortable with feelings. We don't do feelings very well a lot of times in evangelical Christianity. Um, we struggle with how to process those things uh, properly. So because of that, as Christians, we often try to deny our pain and we suppress our emotions, don't we? It's not God-honoring to say those things. 
It's not uh, praiseworthy to talk about God like that. So there's a lot of times that we'll deny that we feel that way and we'll suppress them. We'll, we'll push them back into the background so that we don't actually deal with them. Second thing, the world tells us to just acknowledge our feelings and express our feelings and follow our feelings. So we vent and we dump. That's called Facebook. Right? That is, that's what we do on Facebook. That's what we do a lot on our social media. If it's not the best day of your life, it's the venue, it's the platform that we have all said is publicly acceptable for us to just go blah and emotionally vomit all over the place. Right? So that's kind of the world's idea. So we have this broken Christianity that says just deny it, pretend like it's not there, suppress it. The world's saying, no, 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 be led by your feelings. Fully express your feelings all the time to anybody and everybody, right? So we just kind of blab it all out there. The, go- the gospel and the Psalms teach us, Keller says, a third way that we would pray our feelings, we would pray our emotions, and we would trust God with all of them. We would pray them, and we would trust God with all of them. We're going to see that today in Psalm 39. So I think Psalm 39 informs that last option, the idea that we would pray our emotions, we would pray our feelings, and we would trust God with them. We're going to see that in Psalm 39 as we really dig into that today. So look in verse 1. David's writing this, and what's really interesting about this, we don't know a lot about this guy. In your little subtext subtitle, it says Psalm 39 for the choir director for Jeduthun. We don't really know a lot about that guy other than we know he was one of David's top three musicians, prophet musician guys. And so David is really clear here. Hey, I want this sung when we go to church together. So as you just keep that in your head, David is specifically calling out one of his top three music leaders and saying, hey, this is for you. And when we get together, I want to make sure this one gets sung. Out of 150 psalms, he gives this guy this one. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we go through. It's public. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. So I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. See, he's suppressing, right, a little bit here. We're going to talk about that. He says, my heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Now, man, if that's not just this honest expression of what it means to be hurt and disappointed and sad and in pain, I don't know what it is, right? That David's doing his best not to just blabber to everyone. He's kind of keeping it inside of himself. But, man, that fire gets hot. And sooner or later, you have to vent. You have to release it, right? So that's kind of what we see here in these first three verses. How many times, and we're going to start this from a, a negative and a positive way, I guess, but how many times that you've been in pain have you just spouted off to somebody or maybe some group of people about your sorrow or your anger or your pain or your despair, and you've just destroyed those people around you with what's coming out of your pie hole, right? You're just obliterating the people around you because of the pain that's going on inside your heart, and you're just venting all over everyone around you. So we're going to read scripture, and we're going to read these three verses, and then I can point you to a dozen or more other passages in scripture that talk to us about when we're in pain or when we're confused, angry, or hurt that we don't just spout off on people. Matter of fact, scripture is actually kind of clear. Scripture counsels silence. Scripture counsels us to keep our mouths shut. Now, now why is that? Why would scripture 
kind of hold out as a virtue the idea that we're supposed to keep our mouths quiet during this time. So here we go. You ready? First of all, we tend to be out of control. If you just start spouting off at the first sign of pain and disappointment and fear and anger or whatever else, we tend to not have a, a, once that lion's unleashed, we have a hard time putting it back in the cage, right? Doesn't James talk about the fact that our tongues are like a, they could set a forest fire going? It's a spark that starts a fire, right? Because we tend to get out of control. And so scripture is saying, hey, let's just rein that in. There's going to be a time, there's going to be a time in a right place, in a right person for you to kind of vent that to. But right now, silence. Because you tend to go out of control when you just start venting on people. Second thing, verbal retaliation is a form of, of vengeance and that belongs to Jesus. When you verbally lash out at someone, you're looking for revenge. You're looking to hurt someone, if not the person that hurt you, you're looking to hurt someone the way you've been hurt. And listen to me, Verbal retaliation is a form of revenge, and revenge belongs to Jesus Christ, not you. You don't bring justice into other people's lives. That's generally not our job. Maybe as parents it is, right? Swift arm of justice comes swinging around sometimes, right, as parents. But other than that, that's not our job for the most part. That's the Lord's. But too often, we feel this burden and responsibility and right to lash out. And it's a form of vengeance. Third thing, the damage that it does when we speak to the unsafe people that are around us. Now, this to me is the most condemning thing that David says, and I think one of the most practical things that he says. And I just want you to take a little bit of inventory of your social media life and your verbal life. How many times have you just, in an ungodly, dishonoring way, vented on someone and there have been lost people around you, and you have damaged your witness to them because of what's come out of your mouth. And that's one of David's chief concerns here. There are unsaved people around me, and I don't want them to be hurt by what I would say, because I know what's in my heart. Now, that's pretty convicting, I think, especially for where we live right now and when we live right now. How many times have you just lambasted somebody? And people around you, lost people around you, have heard that coming from a purported Christian. And they've been damaged by what they've seen and heard come out of you. So David's like, be silent for a time. Be silent for a season. Proverbs 15, uh, 1 and 4, Proverbs 10, 19, Proverbs 15, 28, all talk about this. And there are others. But all uh, throughout the Proverbs, you see this over and over and over again. Wisdom is silence. Wisdom means don't just spouting off. Wisdom means keeping control of your mouth, right? In the New Testament, the fruit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And some of us have no self-control in this place, do we? Right? We have zero self-control in this aspect of, man, when I hurt, it's coming out. When I'm sad, it's coming out and I'm lashing out at people. Again, I'm not saying you can't go seek wisdom. I'm not saying you can't go seek Counsel. I think scripture is going to talk to us about that. It says that repeatedly, that go seek those good things from people. What David is, is talking about here, what the psalm is talking about, is just this unbridled, reactionary, ugly words that pour out of me, that want to come out of me when I'm hurt and angry and in pain and suffering, especially if I have somebody else I can blame, right? If I've got someone in particular who has hurt me, Man, I have this tendency just to lash out at them verbally. 
We all need a place to vent the white-hot fire that is within us. And God's not unaware of that. So he's not saying, put this aside, pretend like it's not there. Matter of fact, this entire psalm, I think, gives evidence and proof that God is ready to hear our complaints and that there are proper times for us to do this. But he is saying, man, at first, don't just lash out at everybody. Don't just throw it out there for everyone around you. The the pain and the damage that you're going to make isn't worth what you need to get out of that venting. So there's there's going to be a a proper place for us to speak. And at the end of verse 3, David's there. He's like, and then my tongue spoke, you know, after this time of silence. And he goes to the Lord. That's going to be the first part of the next set of verses we look at. He goes to God and he says, God, here's my complaint. Here's the pain that I have. Here's the sadness that I have, this deep sadness that I have. And sometimes God, it's trusted advisors or it's godly people, and they are God's proxy in your life. So there are times when going to God means you're going to go to some godly advisor in your life, and you're just going to lay it all out on them, right? They kind of become God's stand-in for a little bit. And you kind of lay it out all on them, and God's going to give them some word for you. God's going to give them some direction for you. Sometimes this is you and God in your prayer closet. And you're going to say, God, I don't even know if I can talk to anybody else about this, but i got to lay this on you. So sometimes it's this direct kind of conversation with the Lord. Sometimes it's a very limited conversation you have with somebody who sort of stands in for the Lord almost, you know, uh, to give you this kind of advice. But there's this time when we get to actually speak, right? Look in verse 3 again. He says, my heart is hot within me. And while I was musing, this fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. First word, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. So if we're we're supposed to be silent for a bit and then we can speak, what are we supposed to do with our sadness and our pain and our disappointments? When it finally becomes time to really begin to deal with them, how does Scripture tell us to deal with these things that can be so overwhelming and so incredibly sad? First thing that Scripture tells us to do is to expect sadness expect it. We live in a world that is very much a Pulp Fiction world where the boy gets the girl and the girl is smart and mildly attractive so as not to intimidate the boy or he would find her identity and her physical appearance and they have kids or they have a dog and they vacation to exotic locations a lot and they live happily ever after with lots of disposable income. That's, that's it, right? This is the world that we've kind of come to expect And it's sort of, in so many different ways, that narrative is spoken into our dreams and our hopes from when we're small. And it kind of begins to manifest itself in us, and we're expecting those things. But here's what I want to tell you guys. That's not life. That's fantasy. All I did was present every rom-com to you. I just took every rom-com that's ever been written and stripped it down and made it something that you could go. As a matter of fact, my big fat Greek wedding, I think I just took their, their plot line and gave it to you. That is fantasy. That is not reality. That is the poisonous part of the American dream. That is consumerism that is thinly disguised in our churches as blessings from God. To know Christ 
and the fellowship of his sufferings is what Paul says. Now, I don't know anybody. We prayed this morning. There were 20 of us in here praying this morning. I didn't hear that prayer come out of anybody's mouth today. God, I want to know you and the fellowship of your sufferings. But Paul says we're supposed to. We are to expect pain and sadness and disappointment. We're not looking forward to it. So don't hear me say that. I am not presenting you with some horrible martyrs complex or some kind of Christian sadism. I'm not presenting that to you in any capacity at all. I'm just telling you guys, listen, we live in a broken world. And you are broken people. And you're surrounded with broken people in your lives. You should expect sadness and pain and disappointment. We have sin in our lives and sin to this world. We have an enemy who's out to get, get us. I don't know where your pain's coming from or the source of the sadness that you have in your life. But listen, you should expect them. And if you don't expect them, you're going to be ruled by bitterness and more sorrow. You'll be sad because you have a reason to be sad at that point. When you thought you should never have a reason to have this deep sadness in your heart, you'll be sad because you do. Expect sadnesses and pains and sorrows in this world. Second thing, pray them. Pray your sorrows to the Lord. Pray them to God. Psalm 29, we looked at last week, it's this giant, big, majestic God. Even Psalm 40, which is the one right after this, amazing. You should read it. Matter of fact, you should read 38, 39, and 40 together. They really do kind of form a little series together. But we really don't often think about praying our sadnesses to God and our tears to God. Here's what I find. Here's why I think Psalms are so awesome. One of the reasons. I think one of the reasons the Psalms are so awesome is because I think it's sort of God's open invitation to come and to cry with him. To come and to sit in his lap and just cry tears. Like it's his way of saying, I'm safe and this is okay. Matter of fact, I welcome your expression of pain. God is looking for them, not in hopelessness, not in a sadness that won't go away, but in hope. God is not your therapist, but he will be your comforter and your friend, and he will be your savior, and he will be your God. Pray them to him. Now, right on the tail end of that is, is trusting God with your feelings, trusting God with your emotions, right? So you can pray them to him and then pick them up and stuff them back in your pockets and walk out because you're the keeper of your emotions. You're the only one who can be trusted with how you feel. Or you can take them and say, God, I don't even know what to do with this junk. And it's so heavy and the sadness is like a dark cloud over me all the time. I need to leave them with you. You can entrust them to God. God, will you change my tears into joy? Sorrow lasts through the night, but God, would you just see me through to the morning when joy comes? All of our sorrow ends in joy. Christian, do you hear me? All of our sorrow ends in joy. All of it. Well, you don't know how bad I've been hurt. You take that up with the Lord someday. But I'm just going to tell you, you're going to stand in front of him and you're going to be in joy. And like a rapturous joy that you can't even imagine. All of our sadness ends in joy. As a whole, the book of Psalms, like if you take the entire book of Psalms and you just kind of let yourself emotionally walk through it, 
You can have a lot of tears and a lot of heartache and a lot of anger and a lot of betrayal. You know, all these things you're going to find in the book of Psalms and a lot of these things you're going to see. But here's what's going to happen. At the end of the book of Psalms, the last seven Psalms are consecutive hymns of joy. Even the book of Psalms says, listen, I know this pain is here and I know this sadness is here. But we end with this just kind of triumphant proclamation of joy at the end of the Psalms. All of the sorrow, even in the book of Psalms, ends in this place of joy. So we're going to have to learn how to both hold our tongues and speak our hearts to the Lord. And we want people in our lives. We talk about that all the time here. We want community and we want to give ourselves to people. And there's this rawness that has to happen, this vulnerability, you know, that you have to be able to get into if you're going to be in each other's lives. And we want to have that. We want to have our sadnesses and our disappointments and our pain and have people that we can kind of give it to. We want to bear each other's burdens. I think as your pastor, and I think as uh, trying to raise up other shepherds and leaders in our church, we want to be people that, that really minister to each other well and, and pull each other up when we're down and bear one another's burdens really well. But listen, here's what I want to say, two things. First of all, people will just reach a limit, man. You know, there just becomes a point where you're like, I can't take anybody else's stuff right now. You know, now some of us, your limit is like a little tiny little handbag. And so here's what I want to say to some of you. Some of you need to pray to the Lord and say, God, just would you expand my limits? I, I have, and here's the deal. Those of you who have a tiny handbag, here's what you're going to experience sooner or later. You'll have a very itty-bitty and empty experience with other people, and you'll be frustrated by that. And here's why. Because you're not bearing anybody's burdens. You're just a burden to everybody else. And some of us need to pray, God, I need my, my, my limits to be expanded. I need my ability to deal with people to be greater. I need my shepherd's heart for hurting people to be grown and to be matured. God, would you do that? Would you give me that grace gift, Lord, and just expand the limits that I have with other people? And again, sometimes that happens with, with our life groups. I think it does. I hope it does. I think they're a very stretching place for us for the most part. They should be. Um, it's not hypothetical. So here's what I'm not doing. I'm not saying, I'm not saying for the person in here who's like, I have a very small tolerance for broken people or hurting people or sad people or people who are in pain. I don't do that very well. I'm not saying to you, pray that God would expand your limits and then just wait on a lightning bolt for that to occur. I'm telling you, get into a life group and get your hands dirty with people. If you want to know how to have your, expand, your, your limits with people expanded, live life with people. Get in there. Get your hands dirty. And I think you'll see your heart's ability to love them expand and your ability to put up with pain and sadness and the burdens of other people expand. So get in there and live life with each other. Psalm 39, um, it gives sort of, I think, a song to the sadness that we have in our souls, I think. I think it's a good place for us to kind of start and go, man, I don't know how to express this. God, I don't know how to tell you how sad I am. I don't know what to do with this pain and with this disappointment. And Psalm 39 is kind of the song that we can sing to ourselves. We can put this psalm in our hearts, and we don't know how to talk to God about pain. We can go to Psalm 39 and let it speak for us, right? Let it give a little bit of voice to the things that we don't know how to do. 
Here's, the, again, what I love about it. This is in Keller's book, Walk with Pain, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's like two, page 259. He says this. He said, if we believe that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired and assembled the Bible for us, then we see that God has not censored prayers like this. God does not say, oh, real believers don't talk like that. I don't want to do anything. I don't want anything to do with people like that. or I don't want that in my Bible. We do not see God saying that all cries of agony are illegitimate. God understands. Or put another way, it shows that God remains a man's God because the man, not because the man puts on a happy face and controls his emotions, but because God is a God of grace. Man, do you all understand that? Grace is so big, it's so huge that I can go to God and just give him my junk. And he's like, I know you're my son. I know you're my daughter. Do you guys get that? That's grace. If it were not for grace, i got to clean my junk up before I talk to God. I'm not allowed to talk to God like that. But because of grace and because of the cross, I can go to him with my worst stuff. And he goes, I know. Come sit with me. Let me walk with you. Amen? And that's good news, guys. Good news that we can talk to God like this when we see Psalm 39. So God wants us to truly experience the pain that comes into our lives, not deny it, not pretend like it's not there, but he wants us to do it in a God-honoring way. I'm not going to get into this, but you know there's both God-dishonoring anxiety and God-dishonoring responses to anxiety. Do you understand that? So first of all, we're told in Scripture not to worry and not to have anxiety. And then we're told in Scripture not to act on our anxiety in a certain way. So I can have an anxiety and a worry and a fear and a sadness, I think, that's very dishonoring to God. And I can then express those things in a, in a way that's very dishonoring to God. Okay? That's another sermon we're not going to get into. But I can just tell you that it's there. God wants us to experience our pain and express our sadness in a way that honors Him. Okay? And we've talked a little bit about that. We'll talk some more about that. We've also talked in the past um, about the fact that what you believe determines what you do. Your belief determines what you do. It can be an unconscious belief. Some of you think, well, I don't necessarily believe that. I'm going to go back and say, well, what did you do? Because what you did is telling me what you believe. Okay? So we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to talk about our beliefs. Okay? And what we believe to be true because it determines what we do. How you see God how you understand God and pain and other people, their purpose in this world and happiness. And all those things determine what you do with your profound sadness. Psalm 39 gives us this pathway to go down so that when our pain comes and our disappointment comes, it's not just meaningless. Who read Macbeth over the last year? Anybody? Yeah, nobody reads Macbeth, all right? Shakespeare, Macbeth, many of us had to just endure it when we were in high school lit classes or a college lit class. There's this famous line in Macbeth um, that I want to share with you. Without God, without a proper worldview, and I'm going to say without a proper theology, this is where we end up. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then he is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. You have the option in life of facing sadness and pain with God or without God. Without God, that is where you go. Amen. There is no rest stop for those who, who, 
that, that you go a little bit down the path, a little bit way down the highway without God. Once you go to this place where you're going to handle your sadness on your own and you're going to handle your pain by yourself, you end up in a place of despair and meaninglessness. That's it. Do you understand that? These are the trade. These are the two worldviews that Scripture is presenting you with, that God is presenting you with. Pain will come, expect it. Sadness will come, expect it. Disappointment will come, expect it. How are you going to respond to it? If you go with God down this path, there is hope, and all pain ends in joy. If you go without God, it is, life is a tale told by idiots full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's it. These are the two worldviews we get to choose. And we have to make a decision. And the reason I'm, I'm kind of, I'm I'm, we're going to hammer it over the next 10, 10 minutes here. The reason I'm going to hammer this is because some of that creeps into how we handle our pain and our suffering, our sadness. I could have one-on-one interviews with almost everyone in this room, and I could ask you, is God in control? Is God good? Does God want good things for you? And you would all say, yes, 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 yes. But when pain and suffering comes, you just, we just crumble, we melt, and we start trying to handle it ourselves. And we put these burdens on our shoulders, and we try to pick up everybody around us as if we're their hope and their saviors because we have to drag everybody up out of sadness and pain and hurt and disappointment. That is a godless mind view, guys. You understand that? So you can tell me what you believe about God all you want. I will watch you in your pain, and that will determine, that will tell me how you really believe about God. You understand? Your actions are so much betraying about what we really, our theology, our ultimate beliefs about the Lord. So we're going to really hammer through this today. Psalm 39, not only does it give us this emotional place where we can go to God and just kind of go, blah, God, here's what's going on. And God's like, that's cool, I get it, I understand, I've been there, right? He can walk with us emotionally, but he also gives us this deep theological rooting for our pain and for our sadness. So it gives us a great theology for our pain and sadness. Look in uh, verses 4 through 6, which we read earlier. I want to read it again. Lord, make me to know the end, uh, know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man in his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. Man, man amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Several things we're going to run through here real quickly as it talks about this. Um, the Hebrew word in Verse 5, that talks about breath, that man is a breath. Um, the author of um, Ecclesiastes will take that same word, and he'll say life is meaningless. So David's kind of making this point here. Listen, life without God, man without God is meaningless. Walking through pain and suffering and disappointment and sadness and despair without God, meaningless. You understand that? So he's really laying out the argument for us really clearly and really well, even with the words that he's chosen to use here. So a couple of things I just want to point out as we walk through this about how to handle um, our pain and our suffering in a, with a God-centered worldview. First of all, pain in, Christ, pain in life without God is pointless. The thing we talked about, breath in verse 5. Secondly, Nothing fills the void that pain creates like God does. We all walk around with this hole in our hearts, I think Pascal was right, that only God can fill. Here's what happens when pain and suffering come your way. That hole gets bigger. It's widened. 
And then we go again back to the well of the world and we start trying to shove stuff in there. Boys, drugs, opioids, entertainment, money, big houses, nice family, being good. We start shoving stuff in that void because life hurts, okay? Nothing fills the void of your heart that pain creates like God does. Nothing. But we walk around, we're like, yeah, pastor, I know, but man, I've got this RV, and I've got these babies, and I've got grandchildren, and I've got this sweet, cute boy in my life, and this amazing girl in my life, and I've got baseball, and I've got collecting my stuff, and counting my stuff, and storing my stuff, and I've got keeping my stuff. I've got all these things going on in my life. I've got adrenaline, and I've got this experience thing going on in my life. I like to go do things. God, I've got anger, and I've got revenge, and I've got pain. I'll get to God as soon as I go through these things. Right? I will, I will just expend all these things. And when they fail me, which they will repeatedly, one after one after one, then I, I'll turn to God. Just hear it again. There is no, you are in pain. You've suffered horribly. Some ways I can't imagine. And you're shoving stuff in that hole. Nothing fills that gap in your hole the way God does. So when pain and suffering come your way and your circumstances don't change, what are you going to do during that time? What are you going to be putting into your heart during that time? So here's what I'm not saying. There is time in life for play and downtime and, and entertainment and all those kinds. So I'm not saying those things are terrible. The biblical worldview doesn't say that those things are at odds with living on purpose for God. It just puts them in their proper perspective. God's wisdom is all about enjoying people and things and stuff and all that. But knowing that they are, there's a good way to invest in them and there's a godly way to invest in them. But I don't have to spend my life on those things because they can't give me what I need. So not only is your life a vapor this is ought to encourage us too. So we're like, yeah, man, this is not encouraging, Pastor Joe. This just says that I'm not around for a very long time and I disappear. We're like, that's a bummer. That doesn't help me at all. Well, here's the good news. And if you laugh, I'm going to know who you are. Here's good. You ready? The person who has hurt you, their life is a vapor too. Oh, <laughs> laughter on the front row. But do you guys understand that? This is the picture of God's vengeance. Do you understand that? I have to get to this point where I'm like, God, my life is just so short and I'm shoving all this stuff in and I'm trying to enjoy it and obey you. And God's like, I know you've been hurt and I know there's people in your life who have hurt you and there are things in your life who have hurt you. Your existence is a breath. Their existence is a breath. It will all be over in the blink of an eye. Don't look for the things that evaporate that quickly to fill the huge gaps in your heart. Nothing fills your heart the way that God does, guys. Okay? Third thing about our pain. Sin is the cause of all pain and all sadness. And here's the kicker of this morning. Sometimes it is my sin. Look at verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions, make me not the reproach of the foolish. So he's like, don't let the, fool, don't let the people who don't even know you make fun of me. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done this. 
Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent in my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart, and I am no more. Sometimes my sin is causing or adding to the pain and the sadness that I'm experiencing right now. David, in this passage, he seems to be very aware Now, we might say it's the sin with Bathsheba, but we really don't know. But he seems to be very, very aware of some sin in his life that's connected directly to his current suffering. He is suffering, and he is in pain, and he is sad, and he has somehow been made aware this is directly due to the sin in my life. What was that sin? I think there, my personal opinion is I think there are some clues in the text that talk to us about what this sin is, that I think talk to us. He talks about the moth consuming what's precious to him, that man is a mere breath, we're all transient. He talks about amassing riches for no reason at all in verse 6. Here's what I think it is. He has given up his pursuit of happiness to the things of the world apart from God. He's come through some season of his life where he's been woken up to the fact that he's been pursuing relief and happiness apart from God. Even in some of these good things, family, religious practices, stuff, health, whatever it is, pleasures. Um, This leads to anxiety. It leads to fear. It leads to hoarding. It leads to overindulgences. And it leads to our hearts being crushed when those things fail us. The failure of those things can be God's kind grace. Sometimes we're just bemoaning everything in our life that falls apart. And I personally believe sometimes it's God's grace that he allows some of these things to fall apart because we've, play, we've placed inordinate hope in them. And sometimes God pulls the legs out from that stool so that we then become dependent on him again. Now, that may sound harsh to you, but I think it's God's grace that does that, severe mercies. Second thing, it's a natural outcome of putting the weight of life on things that can't handle it. I'm not going to get into this again, but if, if I took a, a bridge and I put this five, you know, like a, a bridge from Europe and I put a 5,000 ton truck on it, that bridge is going to collapse. It's never intended to handle the weight of that truck. And some of us in this life, we've put all of our happiness on our kids. We've put all of our satisfaction in life on our jobs, on our spouses, on our finances, on our physical appearance, and on our health. And when those things fall apart, it is soul-crushing. There's nothing to fall back on at that point. Because everything we gave our lives to for happiness and wholeness and satisfaction and to fill the hole in our lives that pain brings is gone. And the pain is double or triple or quadruple what it was before because now we have no place of hope. Sometimes because of sin, these things fall apart because just the natural consequences of sin. David is looking at this and he's saying, these things are happening. I'm in pain right now and I'm in the sadness right now because, God, you're disciplining me. You're correcting me. And he's kind of asking for it to end, right? I've learned the lesson. Thank you very much, Lord. No more, okay? So he's kind of at that point. Here's what we need to understand about this, all right, for us to have a really good worldview when pain and some pain and suffering comes into our lives. 
It's the biblical view of these things when God brings them because of our sin. It's discipline, it's correction, and it's natural consequences that come our way. All of those things God either allows or he brings to my life because his favor is on me. And you're like, oh my gosh, God, don't favor me anymore. <laughs> you know, I've, had, I've kind of had my fill of your favor. Thank you. Right, I'd like a boat now, okay? <laughs> no more of this correction and discipline stuff. All these things come to my life as God is, his favor is on me. Here's the thing, man. Some of your kids, I don't, I don't discipline your children, right? I love your kids, but I don't discipline your children. I discipline my kids because they're mine. And you know what? My kids have my favor. If you stack my kids up against the best kids in this room, I'm going to argue for my kids every day, knowing all their warts and their failures, knowing all their issues and their problems. My kid's still the greatest kid in the room. Sorry. Right? And you're going to feel the same way. And you're going to make the same arguments about your children because your favor is on your kids. God's favor is on us, guys. What good father would let us run around in idiocy doing crazy things, harming ourselves out of love and call it love? That's terrible parenting. So the correcting, disciplining hand of God comes along us because his favor rests on us and he is committed to us being and having the very best. Do you understand that, guys? God's committed himself to that. Ironically, Solomon, if you know his story at all, he would be the one to write this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines who he loves as a father, the son that he delights in. Paul quotes it in the New Testament, but Solomon wrote that. If you know his story, that's an ironic statement for him to write. So here we go. How much of your suffering might be directly related to your sinfulness? Now, here's the deal. Some of you are just, you're martyrs, and you're just, the weight of the world's piling on your heart right now. So ask the Lord for a little bit of discernment, okay? Some of us ignore everything, and we write it off to circumstances and somebody else's problem, and the Lord's like, hey, hello, you have a log sticking out, right? How much of my suffering might be directly related to my sinfulness? Not all suffering has a one-to-one correlation between my sin and my pain, but some of it does. So maybe we can start with something safe, like just open sins. These are probably our pet sins. How do you know what your pet sins are? They're the ones that you like to point out in other people. Often the sins that you struggle with are the ones that you catch quickly in others because you know what they look like. And in your veneer of trying to appear holy, you point them out real quickly. Oh, look, that's awful. That's terrible. How offensive. When in reality, you're the one struggling with it maybe the most. So our pet sins are the ones we point out in other people. Secondly, our pet sins are the ones that we keep track of not doing. I keep track of the, my pet sins, the ones that are really got my heart and got my attention and got my affections. I keep track of the times I don't do them, right? Because it makes me feel a little bit better that I didn't do that one that time. And I can point it out to somebody else. <laughs> I can now compare myself to other people, right? So we're going to point them out. We're going to keep track of them. And here's the thing about our pet sins. You're, you're actively pursuing them. You understand that? Some of us are so quick to go, yeah, but Satan, temptation, and if I just hadn't been put in that position. Man, listen, guys, you don't sin because Satan holds you down, twists your arm, and makes you do it. Sin because you want to. 
how much of the pain and the suffering and the sadness in your life right now is directly attributed to a pet sin, an actively pursuing sin. So it could be as simple as this, I guess. Drunkenness, out of control, drinking, self-idolatry, gluttony, laziness, jealousy, envy, boastfulness, pride, sexual sins, out of control, anger. Nobody makes you do any of those things. These are things we actively pursue. And if you're actively pursuing those things and pain comes into your life, A, it's a natural consequence of all sin. B, I think it's God's disciplining favor hand on you going, this should hurt. Stop doing it. Love me, right? So sometimes what we experience in our sin is painful, and that's God's way of trying to wake us up to discipline us to change us. Here's the fourth thing about our pain, fourth thing about our worldview. First thing, pain in life without Jesus, without God, is pointless. Second thing, nothing uh, fills the void that pain creates like God does. Third thing, sin is the cause of all pain and sadness, and sometimes it's my sin. Fourth thing, God rules over everything. Now, here's where most of our theology begins to crack and crumble, and it just gets painful to talk about. God rules over everything. When Protestants first came around and they were trying to teach each other the the Bible, literally after 1,400 years of not having any access to Scripture, and and Scripture just kind of exploded on the scene uh, 400 years ago, and churches were like, how do we teach people the Bible now, right? Really, really get them into Scripture. They came up with catechisms. If you come from a a Methodist background, Lutheran background, a Catholic background, you probably went to catechism classes at some point. And these are just teaching you the truths of Scripture. There's one called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, still in use today. Let me read this section for you, section 5-5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to help them discover the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their own hearts, that they may be humbled." And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support on God. And to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. Now that is thick, rich, and deep. And you would memorize it by the time you were 12. It's a, because it's a worldview. We want to see the world in a particular way, right? A biblically informed way. Now listen, number four is the one you need to write down and highlight because it's going to be challenged. When pain comes, this is the one that's going to be challenged the most. That God is it over, he rules over everything. He says, David says in one verse, he says, it is you who have done this to me. It is you who have done this to me. So in your sadness and in your pain and in your disappointment, are you going to be okay with that idea? The very, very biblical idea that God rules over everything. Is there any comfort there for you? Because there should be. I think that's God's, Scripture's presentation of God's providence, is that it's comforting to know that God is over everything. So does that bring you any comfort? How does that help you when you're brokenhearted? Quickly, first of all, it's factually true. Now, that means it doesn't matter how you feel about it, it's true. God is sovereign by definition. God is the king. God rules. Okay? Last week we looked in Psalm 29. It says that God sits as king forever. He is enthroned as king forever. Okay? 
So again, it's factually true. God is sovereign. Secondly, somebody in your life needs to be reminded and convinced of that. And how quick we are to throw it out when somebody else is suffering and how quick we are to forget it when we're suffering. So sometimes you need to be reminded God is in control. God rules. God reigns. God is sovereign. Okay? Third thing. That doesn't remove my responsibility due to my sin. I am hurting because of my sin and the sovereign plan of God, and he is in control. That doesn't remove my responsibility from the equation. Fourth thing. Sometimes we need to be quiet. And we need to be God's hands and feet in somebody else's life, which, by the way, is also an act of sovereignty. That as you step into somebody else's pain, and you're not giving them answers, you're not trying to explain God's mysterious ways to them, you're just loving them and serving them, that also is an act of God's sovereignty using you and your choices to help those who are hurting. Fifteen, even when God seems distant, even when he feels like he's far away, he is still God. And he is our finally only uh, hope, and it must rest in him. Even if I feel like a foreign guest and not a child of God, I appeal to the fact that God wants even the guests of the land to be taken care of. There are times in my life where I'm like, God, I am a stranger. (laughs) You've forgotten about me, and I am just kind of passing through what you're doing right now. But listen, Old Testament is just riddled with places where God's take care of the person who's visiting you. Take care of the stranger in the land. God's heart even goes out to the stranger in his house. So even if I feel that way, he's still imminently concerned about my, my struggles. Sixth, it is right and godly to mourn and grieve because we trust that God is good and God is in charge. If not, if that is not true, if God is neither good nor in charge... We are wasting our tears and we have no hope. I just want you to think about that. If God's not in charge and God's not good, why are you crying and who are you praying to? Who cares? At the end of the day, who cares? And nobody can do anything to help you. This is the great message of Scripture. God is good and he's in control. And he takes your tears and he bottles them up and he keeps them. And your prayers rise in his incense before him in heaven. And he smells the sweet incense of you calling on him in the worst days of your life. Otherwise, it is hopeless. For the believer, we have to believe that God is inviting me and encouraging me to come to him with heartbreak And for hope, seven things. Some pain does not have an answer or any comfort on this planet. Now, that's not very encouraging, but it also points us to the final hope because this world is not our home. And some of us get bummed out with God and bummed out with Christianity because we had a tough season, a horrible season, a life-alteringly painful season, and it never comes to a conclusion. We get all angry with God, and God's like, listen, this is like the rest stop, dude. You're just you're standing at the signpost that points you to home. Don't get bummed out because the signpost is all beat up, right? And so many of us check out on God and check out on Christianity when life gets hard because we don't understand that God's total final answer for pain and discomfort and sadness is not here. Have you read the end of Psalm 39? There's no, re- there's no uh, resolution. It just ends with this stinks and it hurts. That's it, which I think is beautiful that God lets it end like that. Because for many of us, that is our experience. And it's true, and he wants us to take it to him. I'm not going to go through this next thing because we're over. Jimmy, why don't you guys come on up? 
much as I want to, I'm not going to get into this. Everything that we've talked about today takes us back to verse 7. Every bit of it. This psalm doesn't hinge on verse 7 so much as everything sort of pivots around verse 7. And I think our entire lives are sort of intended to pivot around verse 7. If you look at it, it says, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Out of all this talk about pain and how to see the world and how to handle our sadness and all these things, everything pushes us back to verse 7. God, what am I really waiting for? Really, God, what, what is my heart longing for? Man, God, my hope is in you. My hope is in you. Nothing else can handle the weight of my hope. Nothing else can handle the pain, right, of my sadness. Nothing can fill the hole in my heart. My, my hope is in you. There's no other rescue for me except you. Whether I experience it today or not, my hope is... So this is like the whole challenge of Christianity from the day you get saved until the day you die, that you would transfer your love and your dreams and your desires and your hopes from stuff and people to God. I, I do premarital counseling and let's say I've got, a, I've got a couple I'm doing right now and they're both 23 and I'm like, that means you have 46 years of learned behavior of looking out for yourselves, being the most selfish person on the planet, Right? of just looking out for number one all the time. And you're going to have to spend a lot of time unlearning that as, as a married couple, right? Listen, Christianity is very similar. For however long before you got saved, burned into your soul is sin and looking out for yourself and being selfish. And the rest of your existence on this world is learning how to transfer your love and your hopes and your dreams and your desires from this to him. My hope is in you. We're so quick to pray to get out of any kind of suffering and to ascribe all sufferings to the enemy. It's almost always in the waiting for suffering to end that we have our heartstrings to this world cut and our hearts are laid bare in their devotion to lesser gods. Man, I want you to hear what I wrote there. It's almost always, I I can't even think of another time when this hasn't been true for me. When I'm in pain and sadness and suffering, it's during those times that these ugly things in my life get exposed. Wow, God, I guess I really was hoping on that. I'll tell you, I don't think I've talked about this much here. I know I've said it, but I haven't talked about it. Jordan, uh, before Jordan was born, Mindy was pregnant really bad pregnancy, partial molar preeclampsia. It happened real early in her pregnancy. And it was really very, very bad, life-threatening kind of thing in the hospital and awful. I was 20, 23. And long backstory, but man, one of my heart's desires as a young man was to be a dad. And when that baby died, it wasn't just this baby dying. It was what I had hoped in. I put a lot on that little unborn kid. And part of the pain of those five days in the hospital wasn't just that Mindy was horribly ill and that literally we might lose her and that we lost a baby. It's what I had put in. And man, how embarrassed I think I got by day five. I was like, oh my gosh. 
I put so much on this unborn child that he, he never could have lived up to. And that experience of being his dad never could have lived up to that. It's generally speaking only in those places of deep pain and sadness that my lesser gods get revealed. Does that make sense for everybody? So what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for somebody else to make things right? Are you waiting for your circumstances to change? Are you waiting for the right time to tell that person what you really think about them? Are you waiting until you have enough stuff before you start to be obedient with the things that you have now? David says, I will wait on the Lord. With tears and sorrow and in disappointment and in fear, Father, I have sinned and I've put my hope in so many other things besides you. I've been bitter about the pain in my life. I will stop blaming others and I'll stop blaming you for my anger and my bitterness and my inaction. You are sovereign and you are good. Hear my prayer and listen to my cry. My cry is, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Don't be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like my father's. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and I am no more. My hope is in you and I will wait on the Lord. God, this is our declaration. Those of us who are in pain and we're hurting and we don't know what to do with this stuff and it rules our lives and we're waiting on the wrong things, we're hoping in the wrong things, We've given our hearts affection to the wrong things. Our worldview is jacked up, Lord. God, we need you to redeem it. Redeem our view of the world. Redeem our view of sin. Redeem our view of pain and suffering and sadness. God, we wait on you. Our hope is in you. You're our only rescue. God, rescue us.